0: A new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it.
3: Unfortunately, the princess has a flare of a syphilis and will not be <laughs> able quite to... Quite
4: mad. <laughs> <laughs> quite mad.
3: Quite mad with uh, hallucinations <laughs> involving cars. Large cars.
4: And menopausal. <laughs> I, what, what? I don't the know. The princess. Uh, the princess. Menopausal. How do you say the, the princess? How do you say that?
3: The princess. The princess. <laughs> menopausal.
4: Menopausal.
3: Syphilis syphilis unfortunately
4: <laughs> <laughs> that's cool we, we should do a remix of that
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah someone out there could do a remix of princess unfortunately
4: and syphilis, syphil- syphilis. <laughs> get that <Death laughs> mouse on that
3: Middle portal <laughs> welcome to no dogs in space everybody my name is marcus parks
4: i'm carolina hidalgo and we need new words to work out our warm-up vocals (laughs) we need new warm-up vocal words
5: princess syphilis
3: Syphilis. (laughs) unfortunately will be joining us this evening part four of the beastie boys yes, here we are we are here at part four thank you so much everybody for all the kind words on the series so far for taking this fucking huge journey with us it's a big one it's a big fucking journey but there's a lot of story to tell
2: yes and there's a lot
3: here so come on let's fucking go
2: part four that's it okay
3: So when we last left the Beastie Boys, they were already deep into their relationship with producer Rick Rubin. And Rick had just introduced the band to Russell Simmons, who would soon become one of the most influential and powerful people in hip hop. Now we all know that Simmons abused his power by sexually assaulting dozens of women, but he's also a central character in the development of both hip-hop and the Beastie Boys. And trying to tell these stories without Russell Simmons would be like making a Lord of the Rings movie and fucking cutting Gandalf.
6: Yes,
4: because when I think of hip-hop, I think of Gandalf. (laughs) And the Lord of the Rings
3: trilogy. Yes, <laughs> I used the language that I know. I, <laughs> I used what I know and to make a metaphor. Forty-five-year-olds everywhere. <laughs> if Thirty-eight, any, and you know that. If anything,
4: if anything, then he's Sauron. Sauron.
3: Sauron. 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 That's
4: a new word to
3: use. <laughs> Sauron. Menopause, unfortunately, civilis, civilis. <laughs> No, 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 he's like, like, no, Gandalf, is. he's like Frodo's manager. Like, he tells Frodo where to go, what to do and what to be.
4: I, I don't make the rings. I don't make the rings. I just build the hobbies. All right? I build them up and they go up the mountain.
3: But as far as how Russell Simmons came to be one of the most powerful people and arguably the most popular music genre of the last quarter century, the answer is simple. Despite his crimes... Simmons was still a visionary who saw the potential of hip hop right from the beginning.
4: Yeah. So Russell Simmons, a visionary, a monster, but... But we're gonna yes exactly we're just gonna keep going with this yeah He's we a, have
3: to yeah I mean he is the guy
4: he is the guy uh, the guy from Hollis Queens uh, as we all know famous for being from Hollis mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm a Queens baby <laughs> so I get it I get it you get
3: it yeah you're Jackson Heights
4: <laughs> yes so Russell you know he started his hip hop career basically because of Eddie Chiba yeah because he was handing out flyers at this place called Charles Gallery in Harlem on 125th Street and he basically just did the flyers. Just to go and hang out at the club, which it makes sense. Like you go in for free and everything. (laughs) And one night when he went in to just hang out after a a night of, you know, flyering or dumping them at the dumpster (laughs) around the corner, (laughs) he walked in and it changed everything for him.
3: Well, for him, he said seeing Eddie Chiba. And Eddie Chiba, he was like one of the very early MC DJs where, you know, it's like the, what was one of Eddie Chiba's routines?
4: Somebody, anybody, everybody, scream! (laughs) Yeah. And Uh, on and on and on, we do this shit till the break of dawn.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's Eddie Chiba. And Russell Simmons said when he saw Eddie Chiba, it was like watching someone invent the wheel. Like He knew that this was going to be huge. He, He knew that he was seeing a revolution before his eyes. And he wanted to get in right at the ground level because there's one thing that Russell Simmons knows it is how to make Money. Yes.
6: <laughs> yes.
4: And he saw dollar signs, especially with Eddie Chiva. Just seeing how hip hop was kind of coming together where the DJs were starting to rap now. Mm-hmm. We already talked about that in the, in the last episode and everything. So now it's time to package it yeah. and sell it.
3: Mm-hmm. He just had to find his guy. Because Eddie <laughs> Chiba wasn't his guy. He needed a guy that he could fucking mold and shape and not necessarily control, but... You know, his guy.
4: So Russell, he went from flyering to promoting events. But again, that was also a lot. Mm -hmm. And you lose money. Mm -hmm. No, what's going to make me get more money is instead simplify it. Just manage an act. Yep. Manage an artist like Curtis Blow.
3: Curtis Blow was Russell's first guy.
4: Exactly. He even gave him that name. Yeah. He's like, you're blow, like as in cocaine, and you blow them away.
3: Yeah, because he, he was a bit of a bite on Eddie Chiba, because Eddie Chiba was, Chiba is, of course, marijuana, uh, but blow, cocaine, that's classy. Cocaine's <laughs> classy. Chiba, that's some low-class shit right there.
4: I never got the whole blow thing. It's just like... <laughs>
3: it just seems weird that's what you don't want to do with cocaine
4: (laughs) so so this is russell starting in his hip-hop career basically going from one job to the next job to realizing like no i want to be the man on top Mm -hmm. who's the next man on top of that yeah and of course he goes from that and then he's also promoting records of course so he's going into clubs that is his life his life is going to clubs Every night, all night, drinking, smoking some angel dust. <laughs> <laughs> a
3: was, lot of, was, some angel dust. A lot of like the the line from No Sleep Till Brooklyn, our manager's crazy, he always smokes dust. <laughs> like that shit's true. That is not a joke. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know if he had a room at the back of the bus. He might have, but I know he smoked dust. Yes.
4: (laughs) Russell got into the record industry when he actually met this guy named Robert Ford. This guy, Robert Ford, saw this young kid just putting just like playbills all over the place, like just flyering for these shows. And he's like, what is this? So he went to go meet Russell Simmons and he said, listen, me and my coworker, J.B. Moore, at Billboard Magazine, we want to record a record. We want to actually produce a novelty record about Christmas. (laughs) And we want your client. (laughs) We want your client to do this.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, at the time, like the way he went to him, he's like, man, a Christmas record is like printing money. Like, we need something, but we need something new. We need it. And this rap thing, it looks pretty fucking cool to me. Rush Management is obviously all over the fucking place. That was Russell Simmons' management company. It was called Rush Management and named Rush because Russell Simmons was always rushing around.
4: Yeah, very frantic. Something to do with angel dust. (laughs) So, (laughs) So they get into business again to record this song with Curtis Blow. And it's kind of like a Nightmare Before Christmas story, but updated and, you know, modernized with a rap.
3: Night Before Christmas. You said Nightmare Before Christmas. That's how many times we've watched that fucking movie. Yes, Night Before Christmas.
4: I said that, didn't
3: I? Yeah, you said Nightmare Before Christmas.
4: It's like Nightmare Before Christmas, but like not with Jack Skellington. (laughs) And instead, Santa Claus is not kidnapped, but he goes to Harlem And that is the story. (laughs) And it's called, okay, get ready for the pun, Christmas Rappin'.
3: Finally got that pun last fucking week. I love puns. Why does it take me so long to get a fucking pun (laughs) into my goddamn head? Here's Christmas Rappin'. Hit it!
7: you give me all that jive about things you wrote before i was alive because this ain't 1823 ain't even 1970 now i'm the guy named curtis blow and christmas is one thing i know so every year just about this time i celebrate it with a rhyme gonna shake it gonna bake it gonna make it good gonna rock shock knock it through your neighborhood gonna read, gonna until it it's understood, my rap's about to happen like a knee. You were slapping, or thought you've been tapping on a hunk of wood. Bought a red suited dude with a friendly attitude, and a slave of really for the people on the block. Got a long white beard, maybe looks kind of weird. And if you ever see him, he can give you quite a shock. Now, people, let me tell you about last year when the dude came flying over here. Well, the home was out, stones on the ground. Down. The beat was thumping on the box, and I was dancing in my socks, and the drummer played at a solid pace, and the taste of the bass was in my face, and the guitar player laid down a heavy layer of the funky chunky rhythm of mother disco beat.
4: What is this? What is this? (laughs) I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm not going to, because the last time I sang a Nightmare Before Christmas song, some of our friends made fun of me. Yeah. So, (laughs) rightly so. Rightly
6: so.
3: Well, you know, from Curtis Blow, Rush Management kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and Russell Simmons started getting more and more acts, one person at a time. Like, he picked up Spider D, Jimmy Spicer, you know, Adventures of Super Rhymes, like, you know. lowest Line. Yeah, Lois Line. Yeah, yeah. It rhymes, it rhymes, <laughs> it rhymes, and it rhymes. And then eventually, Rush Management ended up managing who else but the Beastie Boys, years after Mike D first saw Curtis Blow at Madison Square Garden opening for the Commodores.
4: How did that happen?
3: (laughs) (laughs) The thing that made Russell Simmons different from all the other people working in the rap game at the time, like, for example, Sylvia Robinson over at Sugar Hill Records, was that Russell Simmons trusted his artists and trusted what the kids liked. Because Sylvia Robinson, Sugar Hill Records, fantastic stuff. They had Funky 4 Plus 1, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious 5, The Message was over there. Funk You Up, I fucking love that song. But Sylvia Robinson was still kind of running things like it was 1965. Like, she was just treating her, she told her artists, you do what I say. I don't do what you say. If it's not my idea, fuck you. We're not doing it.
4: Uh, Where's my uh, royalty check? Fuck you. Oh.
3: (laughs) Okay. Maybe not so harsh, but yeah, you're not fucking getting it ever. And no. I'll give it to you when I say it's time for you to get it.
4: I think she was one of those like, oh, I don't know. uh, uh You know what? Come back later. <laughs> and later, Sylvia Robinson's not here right now.
6: Damn it. Uh,
3: yeah. Yeah. Come back later. You'll get it eventually. But she was uh, very much, a, she was an old school music producer. Like Sylvia Robinson had been in the game since 1957.
4: Yeah. She'd been around a long time.
3: Love is strange. You know,
4: love <laughs> 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 that,
3: that was Sylvia Robinson. Come here, lover boy.
4: She's Sylvia. Yeah, that she's yes, Sylvia. Mickey?
3: Oh, <laughs> yeah, that is Sylvia Robinson. But Russell Simmons wasn't of that ilk. Russell Simmons had never been in the record business before. He didn't know how the record business fucking worked. All Russell Simmons knew was what the kids liked.
4: Yeah, because he actually, he would get his younger brother, hey, Joey, uh, can you and your (laughs) friends come listen to this? And then he'd play like a song that he'd been working on with his clients and stuff. And if the younger kids weren't like bopping their heads to it, then that means it wasn't a banging song. And then if they were just sitting there still like listening to like what, then Russell be like shit man. We got to go back into the studio. We got to make sure it's banging.
3: Yeah. But even though Russell Simmons could recognize talent, it took him years to recognize talent in his own home. Simmons spent year after year after year pushing off his little brother Joseph when Joseph asked if he could make a hip hop record. <laughs> Just try it for a little while. Say it" instead of record. It's great. Everyone, it's fucking 1984 in New York. Everybody's saying it." It's just the way it fucking goes. And it wasn't until actually 1983 that Simmons finally made that record happen.
4: <laughs> that is true. Okay, so finally, Joseph finally gets what he wants. Mm-hmm. And he becomes Run.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he becomes Run. And he's nicknamed Run because of how fast he could DJ. And when he went into the studio with his friend Daryl, The result was, of course, Run DMC. And Run DMC held an outsized influence on the Beastie Boys.
8: And then we'll never split no logic, no curls, still no rain, easy heads, still get paid.
3: thing man is it not only are they like a big influence on the beastie boys like as musicians they are their friends (laughs) yeah (laughs) like they're their butts
4: well more like older brothers yeah more like
3: older brothers because they're
4: cooler (laughs) and a little more knowledgeable and the beastie boys knew that
3: yeah they absolutely knew that
4: yes so run dmc really quick can i do a real quick run dmc fucking run it down all right run dmc is made of three fly guys yeah (laughs) It's, there's some I have to say fly because they're fly. All they of are. them are fly. They are. All right, we'll start with the first one. Run, as we know, is Joseph Simmons, Russell's younger brother. And Run started out like any younger brother would, helping out Russell with his, you know, promotion, just handing out flyers as a little kid. And then eventually also helping him out even more by DJing for Curtis Blow's set. Because Curtis Blow, remember, he was DJing and rapping, but when the show got bigger, like he couldn't be doing both. So they're like, Okay, let's just get this thirteen-year-old kid <laughs> and we'll call him son of Curtis yeah. to do all the DJ. So, perfect. Great. And then, unfortunately, Run breaks his arm while playing basketball. So, they kind of had to be like, sorry, we had to replace you. So Run was a little disappointed that he couldn't go on tour with all the big boys, but luckily he had a really good friend named Daryl McDaniels. I
3: love Daryl. Yeah. (laughs) He's like the sweetest guy in hip hop.
4: Oh, man. Oh, yeah, exactly. He was like a perfect compliment to Run because Run is loud and extroverted and just really charming and really funny guy, really charismatic guy. And Daryl is just like this intelligent, quiet type of guy very he's a comic
3: book nerd he loves the x-men yes like he'll talk about the x-men all fucking day if you let him
4: (laughs) (laughs) don't ask him about the (laughs) x-men if you want to get away (laughs) (laughs) so so the two of them run and dmc they would hang out you know in their parents attic in run's parents attic and like play the turntables work on rhymes like almost like playing like with dolls Mm -hmm. or action figures like just acting it out and so run after like having like a lot of fun, like practice times with DMC, he said, listen, when my brother Russell lets me make a record, I'm going to put you in my group. And DMC said, yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I have Severe stage fright. We'll see how that
3: goes. (laughs) What I think is amazing about like these kids at this time is that I'm really starting to see like how much American culture comes from middle-class Queens kids. Yeah. (laughs) Like the Ramones, Run DMC, like these are all middle-class kids from Queens just fucking around and having fun. And the entirety, not the entirety of American culture, but like huge parts of American culture Just come from these kids and be like, hey, man, you want to fuck around a little bit? Want to be rock and roll stars?
7: Yeah. (laughs)
3: Exactly. And then they fucking do it. And they change the goddamn world. I know.
6: (laughs) Just
4: by playing around and just just working up, pretty much working and learning their skills. Mm -hmm. And doing it on their own until eventually, finally, of course... 4 years later when they finally graduate from high school they're about to go into college and that's when Ron calls D and he says hey remember what i said that one time when we were kids guess what it's going to happen now i'm finally going to make a record cuz my brother said it's okay
3: finally <laughs> finally <laughs> <laughs> yeah cuz that's what russell was always like for years and years it's like yeah finish high school first yeah get your degree first like every it's always like finish school you finish school then i'll let you make a record <laughs> <laughs>
4: And Run's like, all right, man, I'll I'll get my high school (laughs)
6: diploma,
4: I guess. But uh, so finally, they finally get into the studio because Run had this great song called "It's Like That," Mm -hmm. and then D, who was just the master at writing rhymes, like he had notebooks just. Full, full, single space, forwards and backwards. <laughs> that's amazing. Like with all these great rhymes, and they were gonna go in the studio, and Dee even told like Run, he's like, listen, it's like that, that that's good. I like that song. Mm-hmm. But why don't we add, and that's the way it is?
3: <laughs> almost, almost. And that's the way it is.
4: And that's the way it is.
3: <laughs> Better.
8: Thank you. <gasps>
4: have no future in hip hop, apparently. <laughs> but you know, you know that song, actually, when Russell Simmons sat down with Larry Smith, because Larry Smith, legendary, legendary guy uh, who produced a lot of hits. It was actually his handiwork in there where they sat down and was like, okay, as far as the music goes, Let's make it like Africa Bambetta's Planet Rock. Yeah. You know, let's like make it loud. Let's like lots of drums. Like, And so they put it together and then they had the guys come in. And from that song and their B-side, Soccer MCs, they got a multi-record deal with Profile Records. And then they were just very excited and realized we need a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> Did we forget to get one on the way there? <laughs> so why don't we just get our buddy from the neighborhood, get us some real street cred, Jason Mizell. Jam Master Jay to be our DJ and, of course, resident fashion guru. Because that man knows how to dress himself.
3: Bye, Adidas.
4: RIP, unfortunately. Yeah, RIP. But he was the guy who set the style, who set the look, and completed the group together. Yeah. So they released the EP and then their debut album in 1984, the self-titled album, and it's a hit. It is certified gold.
3: It is huge. And the Beastie Boys were blown away by Run DMC. They were absolutely blown away because this new style that Run DMC was putting on their records, because the way you hear it now, uh, it sounds somewhat dated, but at the time, it was entirely new because it's these big drums. It's very sparse. In fact, when they recorded that album, like they came in, they did the drums, they did the vocals, and the producer in the studio is like, all right, so when are we going to put in the guitars? Don't need them. Don't need them. Don't need them. When are we going to put in the bass? No, we're done. Good one guitar. (laughs) No, a little bit of bass. No, all right. Triangle. No, no, no.
4: No. It's perfect the way it is. Yeah,
3: it's like, and that was Russell Simmons. It's fucking perfect. No more. Nothing else. This is it. The kids are gonna fucking love it. And he was right. The thing is that Russell Simmons is credited as a producer on the first three run DMC albums. But Russell Simmons isn't really a producer the way that we think of a producer. He's no Martin Hannett, you know? Like, he's no George Martin.
6: (laughs) No!
4: (laughs) He's not capturing the sounds of literal silence.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but he's not like the fifth member of the band. He's not the guy that's making the album something special. You know, he's not putting his own twist on it, not his own spin. At this point, Russell Simmons is more of a manager than anything else. But however long it took him to recognize talent in his own little brother... Simmons still had an ear for both what was good and what would sell all at the same time, which is a rare talent. The problem, though, was that he had no idea how to transfer what he heard on the streets and the clubs into a record. For that, he'd need a producer with an equally good ear who could bring the talent to the forefront on an LP while giving it that original sound. That person was, of course, the overenthusiastic white boy from Long Island that Simmons had met at Danceteria, That was Rick Rubin. And off the obvious talent Rick Rubin displayed in producing It's Yours by Tila Rock, Russell and Rick founded Def Jam Records. Yes. Which would eventually, of course released the Beastie Boys debut album.
4: Oh, Def Jam. Def Jam is legendary.
3: Legendary.
4: I know. It all started. (laughs) It's so crazy how it all started. Like Russell Simmons, you know, he meets Rick Rubin. They start to talk and they realize, oh, we have a lot more in common than we thought we would. Mm -hmm. You know, Russell realized that Rick liked all the same records he did, even the ones that weren't selling very well. So it was obvious that he understood the music better than what most people making it did. Mm-hmm. And so then when the guys started talking, they started talking about the one thing they need to succeed in this business, which is how to make money.
6: Money. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
4: So Russell, obviously being semi kind of new to the game, he was telling Rick, like, listen, you know, I help my clients get signed and work on their records and their tours, which are successful, but I'm still just only rich enough to just move out of my parents' house. <laughs> how is that possible? Yeah. You know, what's going on with this recording industry business? You know, I got Run DMC signed to profile for half the price I asked for. Mm -hmm. And in Mercury Records, which Curtis Blow was signed on to, by the way, the first hip-hop act to get signed to a major label, like a major one, they were ignoring Curtis Blow. Like they barely promoted him at all. Mm -hmm. And so to Russell, it was so much work to barely make any money. So here comes a moment where Rick has a light bulb idea. (laughs) He goes, why don't we join forces and then get into business together? You know, why don't we just take the money for ourselves and develop something even better? better than this, you know? I have this little label called Def Jam, because Rick did, that, that was the one that he made to release his uh his experimental punk band, Hose. Hose, Hose. it's what not bad. I, it's H-O-S-E, by the way, guys, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, okay, so Def Jam, why don't we release it together? You know, I got this ridiculously talented 16 year old kid named James Smith, or what, he, what does he call himself? LL Cool J, yes, LL Cool J. <laughs> he sent his demo over to my dorm, and uh, why don't we, instead of taking him to a record label, And in losing all those profits, why don't we just make it ourselves? And Russell said, no. You <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> He's like, are you kidding me? Well, oh, first of all, Rick, you're a college student with a Roddy Piper obsession from Long Island. I mean, no offense or anything, but they, no, no, no. And Rick's like, listen, I can do the work. As far as producing goes, you don't even have to go there anymore. I can do the work with your artists. I can make the beats. I'm a beat maker and, and put the records together. You don't have to do anything except promote it. Do what you're good at. You're good at contacts. You have contacts. You have street cred. You're legit now in this business and I have the beats right? Context beats, beats context. (laughs) And then eventually Russell's like, I got an idea. Why don't we get into business together? (laughs) And Rick's like, that's a great idea. Why don't we do that? (laughs) So they shook on it. And on November, 1984, Rick and Russell released a statement on Billboard magazine That said Hey we're a new Rap record label We're taking it From the streets And showing you what's what We're doing something That no one else Is willing to do We're taking rap To the next level
3: They really were I mean they were Putting out shit That nobody was putting out And the funny thing was is that they were Still running it Out of Rick Rubin's NYU dorm room
4: Oh yeah all Long the w-
3: after they needed to
4: Rick was there For the whole four years <laughs> And I mean he didn't Move out until he graduated And then Where did he move into? Def Jam Productions building. (laughs) Like, I mean, this was his life.
3: Yeah, it really was. Now, even though Run from Run-DMC was Russell Simmons' little brother, Run-DMC was not, as we said, a Def Jam band. They were on profile records. But Russell Simmons was still managing them through his management company, Rush Management. But Rush Management was also, as we said, in charge of the Beastie Boys, partly because Simmons saw them as the first white rap group who could break big, And partly because Simmons and Rick Rubin could see just how good they were. And so while Run DMC were in the studio recording their second album, King of Rock, Russell Simmons hooked it up so the Beastie Boys could come see how the masters got it done.
4: Yeah, the Beastie Boys were blown away because they're huge fans of Run DMC. Like They were meeting their heroes and getting to hang out with them while watching them work and taking hard notes. Yeah. So many notes. They're just like... Okay We're gonna come in here They came in there Very humble Very respectful Hello Hi Hi <laughs> Can we stand here Is this good Okay cool And they just took it all in Because mm-hmm. they realized also This is what's exciting This is like the next thing And this is what We need to get on top of this too mm-hmm. And so Run DMC Also respected The Beastie Boys back Because of two reasons The Beastie Boys Were real Honest to God Fans of hip hop music
3: Heads As it used to be called Yes yeah.
4: They knew all the groups The MCs The DJs The rap battles They listened to rap music all the time They sat around talking about music constantly They lived it day in and day out They were not posers whatsoever No And also, second of all, they weren't trying to act like black rap artists.
3: Not anymore, at least.
4: No. (laughs) At first, first it was kind of like a joke. So they would put on the do-rags and the matching Adidas and everything like that because they would like to have fun with it. But uh, eventually they realized.
3: Well, it was Russell Simmons who was like, this shit is offensive. Stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why are you dressing like that? Just wear your regular fucking clothes. Just be yourselves. That's what we want.
4: That's the best advice. Yeah.
3: Be yourself. Be yourself. Don't try to be else, And they, you know, and they, they paid attention to that. And when they went into the studio with Run DMC, like they knew the pecking order. They knew exactly who they were. They knew who the big boys were in the room and they paid deference.
4: Absolutely. I mean, they were also like, remember, very funny, charming guys to hang out and party with. They were always a lot of fun to be with. They were the kind of guys that they would let you in on the joke. Mm -hmm. And then you guys can have fun together and just, you know, mess around. But also being, at the same time, very respectful and very, very true to what they wanted to do. And They were taking this seriously. This is not a joke anymore.
3: Yeah. And, you know, and I think on like an almost subconscious level, the Beastie Boys and Run DMC got along because they were essentially two sides of the same coin. And while the Beasties came from hardcore punk... Run DMC came from what was being called hardcore rap. See, when it came to both hardcore subgenres, most anyone can participate provided a couple of weeks practice, as opposed to, say, classical music or jazz. That shit's lifelong, and even then you still might be just Eh, fine (laughs) (laughs) after just a fucking horrible horrible amount of work there's a
4: lot of theory to it there's a a lot to it instead this is more stripped down yeah more
3: accessible it's so much more accessible with hardcore punk like you grab a guitar you learn two chords not even three chords you learn two chords play them over and over again as fast as you can scream a whole bunch you got a hardcore punk song with hardcore hip-hop you get a friend that can do a little bit of beatboxing or just have a guy do this and just can't keep a beat and you start rapping uh, and you've got hardcore hip-hop you know it's like that's it's as simple as could be but both are extraordinarily hard to do well.
4: Oh that's a trick yeah. How to do it
6: well
3: I mean but even so the instrumentation it's simple and stripped down the lyrics are raw and real and most importantly, the subgenres are both personal. But while hardcore punk and hardcore rap have a lot in common ideologically, they couldn't be more different musically. While hardcore punk is all about being fast, bands like Run DMC were purposefully slow actually that was one of the big criticisms before run dnc even came out they were like this shit's too slow no one's gonna dance to this yeah. like how because by at that time a lot of hip-hop that was being released especially like sugar hill uh record stuff it was more disco it was a lot more disco i mean hell even the fat boys were called the fucking disco three yeah. you know <laughs> there was like it was stuff to dance to even curtis blow You could dance to, he's on the brains. You can still dance to that. Yeah,
4: because it was meant to be part of the entertainment Mm -hmm. instead of zeroing in and focusing on the rapper. And this is where we're going. We're moving away from the DJ, so not so much the DJ now. And now we're focusing on the rapper.
3: Mm -hmm. And when it came to instrumentation, Run DMC hardly had anything beyond a beat in the early days. But when they did use guitars, the riffs belonged more in an arena than in the basement of a Unitarian Church.
8: I'm the king of rock, there is none fire. higher. him MCs should call me sire. To fire. burn my kingdom, you must choose fire. fire. I won't stop rock until I retire. Now we rock, talk, party, and come correct. All cuts are on time and rhyme connect. Got the right to vote and will elect. And other rappers can't stand us, but, but give, give us respect. You. It's not Michael Jackson And this is not Thriller It's one death rapper I know I can hang I'm run from Run DMC Like who for cool in the gang Road to the rock Rock to the road DMC stands for they didn't right control You can't touch me With a ten-foot pole And I even made the devil Sell me his So, 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 so
3: Now at this point In the Beastie Boys history They were paying a hell of a lot more attention To Run DMC Than say they'd been paying attention To minor threat a year or two before. So when the Beasties recorded their first single with Rick Rubin for Def Jam, they and Rick both followed Run-DMC's lead. Now, the Beasties admittedly did not want to use a hard rock song for the sample in Rock Hard, which laughably, it's a terrible name. It's <laughs>
4: I, I know, I know. Uh, it, it is, uh, it's not sexy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no. But Rick Rubin convinced them that for their first single the best choice for a sample was a riff from one of the cockiest cock rock songs in all of cock history
4: (laughs) and how vast is cock history (laughs) anyway i just want to know
3: vast it's vast it's vast (laughs) they fucking use back in black from acdc from (laughs) acdc
4: baby run dmc <laughs> you know a lot of that is like you said rick's influence because rick came from like led zeppelin and acdc and motley crew mm. and the guys is like what is this <laughs> okay all right do what rick says that that was always a thing yeah. Th- there was probably should have been a sign somewhere <laughs> in the def gym you know in his dorm room really where he ran it just listen to Rick
3: yeah just listen to Rick and you know nine times out of ten Rick Rubin was fucking right yeah one time out of ten he was wrong it was very wrong
6: (laughs) very very wrong
3: but I mean with this you know you hear the Beastie Boys are just trying to be run DMC you know even Ad-Rock said that like when he goes back and listens to Rock Hard he hears to him it sounds like a bunch of child actors trying to act like adults (laughs) uh, that it just doesn't fucking work and you know Rock Hard was a flop nobody really liked it when it was released on Def Jam it didn't even get as much play in the local clubs as Cookie Puss and Cookie Puss was a joke
4: yeah but Cookie Puss was a banger it It, it had a really good riff to it
3: it did it had a great riff it it did have something to it but that's the thing is that it had a, a je ne sais quoi that was specifically the Beastie Boys you know it was them being themselves but the next single after rock hard that would gain some traction partly because def jam records signed a marketing and distribution deal with columbia and because of that distribution deal the beasties got major label distribution for single number two she's on it which is getting closer to the beastie boy's true voice
8: On it. she's
9: on it. She like a
2: nag.
3: I don't know how it started. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean this, it does this song marks the next step in the Beastie Boys evolution. She's on it was the first Beastie Boys video. You know, it's very much like it's 1985. It's very much 1985. It's yeah. a 1985 video. It's three horny boys chasing around a hot girl on the beach.
4: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow, you really actually... That's it. That's <laughs> all it is. It really is. And, I mean, it's, it's Looney Tunes. It, it's, yeah. it's it's silly. It's campy. It's fun. Rick Rubin, you know, he went to NYU for film school, and so he d- he directed it. Yeah. And and it is it's just fun. It's silly, it's ridiculous. But uh, I think that was the whole point.
3: Yeah. Of course, that's the whole point. Yeah. They stayed at Rick Rubin's parents' house in Long Island while yeah. they filmed it.
4: And, and the sexy blonde lady like mm-hmm. had to like stay the night in Rick's childhood ho- or, like a bedroom. <laughs> I mean, in in his little twin bedroom. Who knows how many times he's... Oh, God. Anyway, but, you know, they were very nice to the lady. I hope they wash the sheets.
3: She had nothing but the best things to say about the Beastie Boys.
0: Yes. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
2: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
3: Now, the Beasties were doing all right at this point in time. But the star that was truly on the rise here was Def Jam, the label itself. After a story about hip-hop ran in the Wall Street Journal calling Russell Simmons the Mughal of Rap, a film producer from Israel named Menahem Golan took notice. Now, if you haunted a VHS rental store in the 80s, or if you haunt the darker corners of Prime Video today... I do sometimes. As do we both. Then you're well acquainted with Canon Films, which was Menahem Golan's production company. Responsible for everything from The Happy Hooker, to The Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. To The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. Did she go home?
4: <laughs> or he, they?
3: It was a woman. The Happy Hooker. It's just, a, it's a woman named The Happy Hooker. It's very sexy. It's sexy. Okay. <laughs> 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 All right. But, you know, Cannon, they made trash. Aside, of course, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But they also made, like, Emmanuel Six- uh,
4: oh, the Emmanuel movies? They
3: made one of them. Oh, like oh, they I, made Death Wish 3. Like, it's just.
4: Th- oh, and Breaking. Yeah. Yeah. The, the breakdancing movie of the year. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. It's not just a hacky joke.
4: No, no, it, It's it, it was real. I'm was sure real. the tagline probably said like, this is a real movie, kinda.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, Golan figured after reading the article in the Wall Street Journal, he saw another fad. He saw disco, you know, like, let's make it just like, you know, there was a ton of disco movies. Saturday Night Fever, of course, was a disco fad movie. He figured let's make a hip hop fad movie and just make a quick buck, just like I did with Gas Pump Girls, Hospital Massacre and Othello, the Black Commando.
4: <laughs> Wait, Gas Pump Girls didn't get their own trilogy? <laughs> wow.
3: But since Russell Simmons correctly didn't see hip hop as a fad, he declined Menahem Golan's offer and instead chose George Jackson and Doug McHenry to make the movie that fictionalized the founding of Def Jam, what, a year or two after Def Jam was founded? Yes. <laughs> that film was one of our favorites. It's got a wonderful scene with the Beastie Boys right in the middle and it's Crush Groove. Yeah. If you've never seen Crush Groove, fuck, go watch Crush Groove. It's so much fun. Yes.
4: <laughs> it, it's not as big as E.T. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the working title was Rap Attack.
3: Oh. oh. Rap Attack. Rap Attack. <laughs> Rap Attack. So,
4: yes, the, the plot of Crush Groove, the movie, uh, it's a Hollywood fictionized version of the lives and careers of Russell Simmons, Run DMC, Rick Rubin, and the whole making of Def Jam, mm-hmm. pretty much. But it's very much fiction you know of them doing this and the funny thing is like they've been doing this for a couple years and they're like it's time to have a memoir you know (laughs) like we're gonna make this movie (laughs) and so it's like pretty much about like a young record promoter which is supposed to be russell simmons played by blair underwood who manages his younger brother's rap career played by run and the (laughs) rapper's name is also run in the movie (laughs) and then russell you know blair underwood partners up with a college kid who runs their record company out of his dorm room. That guy's name is Rick, and that's Rick Rubin in the movie.
3: Rick is played by Rick Rubin. Exactly. Rick Rubin plays himself. Run plays himself. Curtis Blow plays himself.
4: Exactly. Except for (laughs) Russell Simmons, they get Blair Underwood because Russell Simmons, let's just... He's he's not a, a Hollywood guy. No,
3: he he has one cameo in the movie, and he's wearing a t shirt that's way too tight for him. His belly is fucking out. He looks gross as fuck. Like he looks super fucking
6: gross.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, he he definitely uh, filled out that that he has that final form of the uh, the retired cop always fishing. <laughs> always fishing that's
3: that's what he looks like yeah and russell simmons also has a pretty strong lisp he's not going to be a leading man
4: yeah but then they hire like a very attractive actor named blair underwood (laughs) with abs like doing pull-ups and russell's like yeah that's me
3: come on and then he has they just for some reason throw in this weird romantic subplot with sheila e You know, who's one of Prince's protégés and has a very awkward sex scene between Blair Underwood and Sheila E. There's no reason why that should be in there when the Beastie Boys only get one fucking scene and (laughs) the fat boys just spend the entire time with the fat boys. The fat boys are in the movie, too. They're great. They spend three, four, five minutes just in a Sbarro, rapping about being fat, rapping about how much they love Sbarro, how much they love food, and then they just get the fuck out of there.
4: It's a masterpiece. (laughs) What we're trying to say that this movie is a masterpiece. It is.
6: It is. it is wonderful with
4: it's false but the fat boys being hilarious are they're hilarious in it L.O. Cole J is super, I mean, he's super cool in it too. Mm-hmm. And then New addition, I had a cameo, Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde. And of course, like you said, the Beastie Boys singing their song, She's On It mm-hmm. at Disco Fever to a huge enthusiastic crowd, which obviously we're about to find out was far from reality. <laughs> so you see, this is all fiction, Yeah. but it was a hit movie. Yeah. It really was. As I said, it's not AT, but it mm-hmm. was big for what it was. Although that was also around the time actually that Curtis Blow, after that movie, Wrapped, he left rush management because it was hard for him to deal with the fact that Run DMC star was much bigger mm. and Curtis Blow, not so much. And he would have to actually open for them at a festival. So they kind of changed the headlining, like oh. instead of like, you know, Run DMC opening son of Curtis. Mm-hmm. Now they had to switch and it just it didn't gel well with Curtis Blow's ego at the time. Yeah. And so he just couldn't take that. So he went to L.A. to continue his career there.
6: Mm
3: mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the Beastie Boys, like they they're in it for what? 45 seconds? Yeah. A, a Just, minute? Yes. Something like that. But hey, they're still, they're out there. You know, like that people are starting to see who the Beastie Boys are. And even though the Beasties were great in that crush group scene, they still really only had four hip hop songs of their own that they could perform live. They had She's On It. They had taken a song, like Run DMC had given them a song called Slow and Low. Uh, they had that and uh, they had Rock Hard and one more.
4: Sometimes they would do a cover of Teela Rocks, It's Yours. Yeah. Just to fill it out a little bit. <laughs> Let's just had this. And, and then they'd just be on stage for like 15 minutes. It's mm-hmm. pretty much just showcasing them just a little bit, giving them a, a small dose of these three guys. And, <laughs> and just to kind of slowly get them a little bit more cred within the hip-hop community, especially in the Bronx, especially in Queens and in and, and places like that where maybe three white guys, three white Jewish guys might not normally fit in, but but they're, they're starting to develop you know their skills and also getting in with Run DMC and Def Jam and Rush Management.
3: Mm-hmm. But even though they only had four songs that they could perform live, that didn't stop them from going on a national tour opening for one of the biggest acts in the world. In 1986, the Beastie Boys toured America opening for Madonna behind her album Like a Virgin. early Madonna until the day I fucking die. Of
4: course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) She was like the real deal for me, especially. I, I think uh, Erotica came out, and uh, gosh, I can't forget. And then there was Ray of Light. Mm-hmm. That was my jam. Like that was, and then of course, going back to Like a Virgin, Material Girl, Like a Prayer. Oh mm-hmm. my God, Like a Prayer.
3: <laughs> yeah, they're great fucking songs.
4: Yes, I've always been a very big fan of Madonna. You know, and, and, and her stuff today, I, it's fine. Ah. I, I don't need to get into it. But we can get into Madonna.
3: Yeah, we can. So, we can get old Madonna.
4: Yes, old Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> happens to be young Madonna. <laughs> Just a shy little, well, not very shy, actually. A not shy Michigan girl moving to New York City to study dance, but soon dropping that to get into music. Mm-hmm. And so she did. She, you know, played and sang in bands like the Breakfast Club and Emmy and performed at places like Maxis, Kansas City. So, you know, her beginning career is kind of parallel a little bit to the Beastie Boys in that sense.
3: Yeah, Madonna is a part of the same scene.
4: Yes, exactly. They had a lot of mutual friends. They ran in the same circles, hanging out at Danceteria. Like, that was her place. That was, like, you know, the famous story about Madonna, like, handing her demo tape to the DJ, but the DJ is, like, ignoring her. And then she just stood there, she just holding the demo tape and just waiting until he's like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll just put it on. And it's everybody,
3: yeah. you know?
4: <laughs> and then it plays. Like, she is
3: ambitious. Very much so.
4: Crazy ambitious. And so she got her break when Mark Caymans, who DJ'd at Danceteria, helped her out with her demo, which led to Sire Records watching her perform at the same club on a variety show that Howie Montag would put on called No Entiendes.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah, so from that, she signed with Seymour Stein from Sire Records and released everybody as a single and then Burning Up and then her debut album that came out in 1983, followed by her second album, Like a Virgin in 1984, which led to her first major tour in 1985 with the Beastie Boys opening for her. So, like we said, Madonna and the Beastie Boys weren't friends or hung out or anything, but they ran in the same circles. They had the same friends, especially, you know, Mark Kamens. They they knew each other. Mark Kamens had a little bit of a hand with the Beastie Boys recording as well. And uh, DJ Anita Sarko, you know, rest in peace as well. They all knew each other. Actually, even the Beasties played in Non Tiendes. Yeah. Like for that variety show like they weren't the BC boys they they went on for cuz it was a fun show they went on as the three bed Jewish brothers <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, it was Mike D, Adrog, with their friend Josh. Uh, Mike D was MC Berkowitz,
6: (laughs) and Adrog was Jam
4: Master Jew, and uh, they had songs like Lock's Box (laughs) as a spoof on Run DMC's Rock Rock Rock, Box. You see, they always enjoy doing this kind of thing.
3: Always, and didn't three bad Jewish brothers, didn't they almost get signed to like a European label? Okay, so this is what happened.
4: (laughs) They did their little show. They did their show ones. And then the people at Celluloid Records asked them for a meeting because they were interested in signing them. And the Beastie Boys already kind of starting to develop their thing with Rick Rubin in his dorm room. We're like, well, we should take this meeting just yeah. to see. And they just went just for the hell of it. It was like, no, we're not going to sign. as the three bad Jewish brothers. <laughs> I mean, maybe it would make our moms proud, but it's not a good idea.
3: (laughs) But yeah, I mean, to the point, like Madonna was a part of the same scene as the Beastie Boys. They were signed to Sire Records. You know, they were signed to the same fucking label as the Ramones and, uh, and, and the Talking Heads. Like, that's the bizarre part about this whole fucking thing. But as far as how the Beastie Boys actually got on tour with Madonna, who, by the way, this was Madonna's second album. Holiday had already come out. She's already making hits. She's become one of the biggest fucking artists in the world but how the beastie boys got on it all came down to the clever machinations of russell simmons see madonna's tour manager freddie demand called russell simmons hoping to book run dmc as the opening act for madonna's upcoming tour but the quote russell gave for run dmc was too high demand then asked if the fat boys were available and this wasn't an unreasonable assumption because the fat boys had played a part in Crush Groove that was pretty much those are the two plot lines one plot line is Def Jam the other plot line is the Fat Boys I
6: like to eat
4: (laughs) I like to eat at buffets (laughs) I love buffets so I get it
3: yeah I get it I get it too but the problem was is that Russell Simmons didn't manage the Fat Boys but without missing a beat Russell still said Fat Boys aren't available sorry (laughs) but who I do have is the Beastie Boys, and you can have them for the bargain basement price of $500 a show.
4: Well, that seems like a good deal. It
3: was a great deal. And fucking Freddie Demand was like, all right. Yeah, why not? They
4: run with Run DMC. So how bad can it be? Well, let's find out.
3: Four songs. So
4: They had four songs. Like, do you guys have anything else? It's like, well, I could try Cookie Puss again. Um, so the Madonna tour, which is the Like a Virgin tour, that went on in on April 10th to June 11th in 1985, right? So this is the first time the Beastie Boys go on tour the first time they learned about room service yeah you know and uh, they said they didn't even bring much luggage on the tour they didn't really plan this so they just kind of wore the same clothes for three months (laughs) which reminds me of our little friend ben kissel (laughs) who was notorious for never bringing luggage ever
3: he bought Luggage the other day. No way. He said, "This next tour we're going on, Ben Kissel is bringing a fucking suitcase." Oh,
4: good. Because <laughs> I remember what last time and like when we were in Australia or something, and Ben's like, "Hey, do you have a comb?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Dude, just just get
6: a bag." <laughs>
3: when are we I gonna get a bag? The the fucking hotel they just give it to you. They give you everything you need. Why am I gonna bring stuff when the hotel gives you everything you need? I can wash my underwear in the fucking sink. Why do I need to bring more underwear?
4: My favorite one was uh, I forget we were in Minneapolis and Ben. Used a fork to comb his hair (laughs) like Ariel from The Little Mermaid. i thought it was great oh oh, we love that the adorable days yes (laughs) so anyway so okay so the bcs they're wearing their same shirt and jeans so they're pretty much cartoon characters anyway so Mm -hmm. it makes sense and rick rubin was with them that he toured with them as their dj remember he was dj double r at least for the first week until rick got an inner ear infection and uh decided to stick to working on def jam and retire from djing forever Yeah. So they got their friend Scott Jarvis. Remember Scott Jarvis helped them out in recording their stuff when they were hard rock band. They had him fill in as a DJ, even though he had zero DJ experience. But remember, it doesn't matter because all he had to do was start and stop three or four songs. (laughs) It was nothing.
3: Yeah. It wasn't like a gigantic, huge show. It was just like, give us a beat for a few minutes and then the rest of the time will be spent. Being shitheads.
4: <laughs> yes. Just <laughs> drinking beer and just yelling our uh, rhymes. Yeah. And that's what they did. So because remember, like you said, like like a virgin tour was huge. It was big time. Madonna was becoming a huge star. Like she was rising rapidly, even while they were booking it. Like her managers had to rebook bigger venues for the tour. So they ended up playing in huge, huge arenas all over the country. Seattle, Portland, Miami, Cleveland, Chicago, LA, New York City, everywhere. So this means a lot of exposure for the Beastie Boys. But how are they going to compete with Madonna, right? Who's a teen idol who dances and sings pop songs. Like they knew that Madonna's fans are not going to like their music, but they needed to take this opportunity and put it to their advantage. So MCA, Ad Rock, Mike D and Rick put their heads together on this and they thought, okay, so Madonna's teeny bopper 14 year old fans are not going to care about three smelly guys rapping about beers and girls. We know this. So we'll flip it. Right. We're going to get them to want to hate us. (laughs) Right. That way they won't forget
3: us. It's the heel.
4: Get it. They hate us because they won't forget us. Yep.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so remember, Rick was a big wrestling fan. Like you said, he was a heel persona. He loved theatrics. So this is what we're going to do. So, and, and the guys, remember, grew up listening to punk music too. So they loved the antagonistic attitude towards the crowd. Like like Think like Alan Vega from Suicide or Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols. So that's exactly what they were going to do. They were going to go on stage in front of thousands of girls <laughs> and their mothers every night and do a Johnny Rotten.
3: <laughs> And we're not talking, we're really not, we're talking some 14-year-old girls, we're talking a lot of like 8, 9, 10-year-old girls. We're talking children.
4: While the three of them are yelling and cursing and grabbing their crotches <laughs> and saying, Who likes sex? Who likes sex? (laughs) And throwing beer around and getting booed the entire time. Adrock called it a 10-minute boo fest every night. And Mike D said, yeah, there were thousands of girls screaming, screaming to get lost. (laughs) And then they came back home to New York City, and that's where they got to open for Madonna and play Madison Square Garden. (laughs) Their friends are there. Their families are there. Their parents are standing in the wings. And Adrock goes on stage and immediately yells, I'm happy
9: to be home. And you know why I love New York? Because it's got the best pussy! (laughs) <laughs>
4: uh, Miss Horowitz, yeah, <laughs> and, just, and all these girls are just crying. They made children laugh, and made children so they make children cry. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, I'm laughing, and then the mothers are just like, "Why? I never, I never, I need to file a complaint." Like there was a lot of complaints. Yeah, and there were a lot. Like they got negative reviews everywhere they went. On one review, the music. Critic devoted five paragraphs on why the Beastie Boys (laughs) suck. Nearly one third of Madonna's tour review. You see, that's what they wanted. Their names popped up everywhere in newspapers and magazines. Madonna liked them a lot and thought they were funny. Mm -hmm. So she's like, it doesn't matter. The audience is happy to see me by the time they get off stage anyways. (laughs) So it was good for her, but her managers... Really, really did not like the Beastie Boys. They wanted to kick them off the tour, so they had to like be like, "All right, let's." We need to go ask nicely. So they picked MCA because he was the cutest one, apparently, according mm-hmm. to Madonna. Yeah, MCA had to knock on her dressing room door and ask her nicely if they could stay on the tour, <laughs> which they did. She said, "Sure, of course." And l- luckily, with no conditions, they were allowed to continue on as before. <laughs> Nothing changes on the show; it's exactly like that. And you know, and she liked them, even though they got along well, she still would refuse to she wouldn't pose with them for a picture (laughs) because it's like, yeah, but I can't be seen, you know what I mean? Uh, So uh, even though like the Beastie Boys at the end of the whole tour, they crashed her rap tour party in Mm -hmm. LA. Uh, But luckily there, the Beastie Boys made friends with Glenn Friedman, a very well-known photographer now. And Glenn, luckily, hanging out with them at this party, he got the Beastie Boys to pose with every celebrity they could find. (laughs) That's why there's pictures all over the internet, the Beastie Boys with Sean Penn, mm-hmm. the Beastie Boys with David Lee Rock, <laughs> the Beastie Boys with Billy Idol and Rob Lowe, and of course, Weird Al Yankovic.
3: Of course. That's
4: where the, all that comes from is because Glenn was like, I have a great idea. Let's <laughs> just go
3: around yeah. and just
4: ask everybody. Yeah, because
3: this is around the time of Like a Surgeon.
6: Yeah. Hey! <laughs>
3: Cutting for the very first
5: time
3: Yeah, yeah. I love that song too <laughs> It's great You know, and they did have a great time on tour Like one of the best concert photographs of the 80s Is the Beastie Boys on stage with Madonna Shooting her with water guns As she's like running away from them Yeah It's a wonder. It's just a, a real fun time But, you know, it also is paired with like crying children <laughs> <laughs>
4: I know, like they didn't take pictures of the children, yeah.
3: <laughs> So after coming off the tour with Madonna, the Beastie Boys settled back into New York City. They moved out of the asphalt apartment on Christie Street. Mike D. moved to Barrow Street. Ad-Rock stayed in Manhattan <laughs> somewhere. And MCA moved to Brooklyn, where he puzzlingly became the super of his building at like 21 No one knows why he was super. No one knows how he was super. But it's cheap. It's free. Yeah, it's cheap and it's free. But he also no one was like, you don't know how to fix a fucking radiator. Someone's radiator broke. Fucking MCA figured it out.
4: Well, he can always figure it out. (laughs) One thing I did learn, because I used to work with somebody who was a super building. You don't really need any qualifications. All you have to do is just show up when they call you about something. So imagine like, you know, you're calling up and be like, oh, my toilet's broken. And MCA shows up. (laughs) What's the problem?
3: (laughs) Well, at this point in the Beastie Boys' career, they had, in Ad Rock's words, nothing to do but nothing. But as it goes with the Beastie Boys from here on out, nothing to do is essential to their creative development. During this time, the Beasties became obsessed with three songs in particular. Christmas Rappin', which you heard earlier, The Return of Leroy, Part 1 by Jimmy Castor, and this 1986 classic from Slick Rick, which is, of course, one of the most influential hip-hop songs of all time we also got to give a little shout out to dougie fresh
5: hit it oh yeah you know what la-di-da-di Lottie, la-di-da-di Lottie, you know what? Your peep is lotty dotty. We like the party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. We're just some men that's on the mic. And when we rock up on the mic, we rock the mic. Right? For all of y'all, keeping y'all in health Just to see you smile and enjoy yourself Cause it's cool when you cause a cozy, cozy condition And uh, that we create Cause that's our mission So listen uh, to what we say Because this type of shit, it happens every day I woke up around 10 o'clock in the morning I gave myself a stretcher, a morning yawning Went to the bathroom to wash up Had some soap on my face and my hands upon a cup I said, um Mara Mara on the wall Who is the top choice? Of them all There was a rumble-dumble Five minutes It lasted The mayor said You are you conceited bastard but that's true. That's why we never have no beef. So then I washed off the soap and brushed the gold teeth. You thought I love Olay because my skin gets pale. And then I got the files for my fingernails. Due to the night, and on my behalf, I put the bubbles in the top so I could have a bubble bath. Clean. Yeah.
9: Yep.
4: Storyteller. Yeah. Great, great, smooth storyteller. That's yeah. Slick Rick.
3: Slick Rick's the fucking best. So inspired by these songs, particularly the Hold It Now from Christmas Rappin' and the hit
6: it from Lottie Dottie,
3: (laughs) the Beastie Boys went into the studio all by themselves without Rick Rubin and found their voice with their first hit single, Hold It Now, Hit It. Now for the Beastie Boys, Hold It Now, Hit It was the song that changed everything. They weren't trying to sound like anybody else and they were putting together samples from songs they liked with beats they made to create something that was, for the first time, unmistakably the beastie boys in fact hold it now hit it might have been more self-conscious than we give them credit for because mca actually called out both of their roots in a single couplet he said hip-hop body rockin doin' the do beer drinking breath stinking sniffing glue
4: oh i get that yeah
3: body rockin treacherous three and glue the ramones hip-hop punk together Uh, really the secret sauce concerning how they were able to put this together is all in the location where the song was recorded, which would be the same place where they would record licensed to ill. That place was Secret Society in Chinatown.
4: Oh, yes. Secret Society Studios. Imagine Russell Simmons saying that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. He deserves
9: it. Anyway, so...
4: (laughs) So, uh, you know, a friend of theirs, Jay Burnett or Burzuti, was a recording engineer for Shakedown Studios where MCA worked before. So they were friends. They were all friends with each other. And so he's the one who told them like, hey, there's this cool place downtown near Chinatown. You should really get that place. So with Rick, they made a deal with the owner of the studio to let them record there anytime. Mostly because that place was shady as fuck. (laughs) I mean, it was like probably like some sort of drug dealing haven kind of place. Something.
3: There just wasn't a whole lot going on there.
4: I I think there was (laughs) a lot going on there. That's the feeling I get from the interviews. I don't know. I don't think they want to go out and say it. All right. All right. But it's kind of like, yeah, I guess you could use this. Studio, just don't look in the back room or something. <laughs> so, so that was the great thing. They can go in and out whenever they want. They didn't have to schedule anything or or keep bringing their equipment back and forth. It was theirs to use for the song. Mm-hmm. So, which was a sweet deal, even though it was a shithole. Actually, <laughs> it was a it was a small, dingy, smelly, darkly lit single room studio on Center Street. You know, very very gross, but even though it sucked, it was home. Mm -hmm. It was home to them now. Mm -hmm. It was their new home. So actually when License to Ill was later released, they changed the name of the studio on the credits so that way other, you know, groups wouldn't get in on it because it was like their special secret hideout place. So they called it Chung King's House of Metal, (laughs) (laughs) which is a brilliant name. Love Chung King's. And of course, when the Beastie Boys blew up uh, later on, the owner changed it to Chung King's (laughs) House of Metal and... That way, in turn, everyone started recording there mm-hmm. from there on out. You know, Run DMC was already there, LL Cool J, Public Enemy, and DD King, and Notorious <laughs> VIG later, and Nas. And yes, yeah. uh, unfortunately, Funky Man was created
8: <laughs> in ba, 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 at Chung ba, Kings. Ba, ba,
4: funky. Yes. <laughs> so okay so I just love the idea of the Beastie Boys being like don't tell anyone (laughs) and then they and then the owner tells everyone and every major hip hop artist there I mean Jay-Z and Kanye West it, it became legendary yeah Again, by accident. (laughs) All right. All right. So back to the song. Back to the song. Hold it now. Hit it. So the three Beasties, Mike D, Ad-Rock, and MCA, as you said, they did most of the work themselves in the studio. They just walked in and they decided, hey, let's have a reckless evening. Yeah. You know, like, let's just put this together. And that's what they did. They put all the elements of what they liked and then they made it their own. You know, they figured out how to use like the different beats and samples and scratches that inspired them. Uh, they finally found their voice, like you said. I mean, they were producing their own shit now, you know. And then they showed it to Rick, and he flipped out. He loved it.
3: Yeah, and what they brought to Rick Rubin was this. Hold
4: it
7: now.
6: Hold it, 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 it.
8: Hold it oh, now, it's hold, it's now. hold it now It's my drunk, it's
9: my, holding it now, it's my rhyme Then i would T, Adam, y'all getting the place to be The girls are on me, cause I'm down with my T I'm down with my T, and it ain't no baloney For real, not phony, O-E, and rice I come out at night, cause I sleep all day He's
3: the only rapper in fucking history to name check Manhattan. And he name checks it like five times. Yeah, he does. License to (laughs) Hill. No one ever says, I'm from Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) And so after putting just a bit of shine on the track, Ruben took Hold It Now Hit It to Russell Simmons. And within just a couple of months, Hold It Now Hit It became the first Beastie Boys hit In the hip-hop world, almost the entire community recognized the Beastie Boys for their newfound talent, from the heads to the clubs to the radio DJs. And off that momentum, Russell Simmons had the Beastie Boys open on Run-DMC's Raising Hell Tour, which of course was when Run-DMC released... This fucking song.
8: This speech is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right on time. It's tricky. Uh, it's uh, tricky. it's we go. It's tricky to rock around. To rock around. That's right on time. It's tricky. It's tricky. 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 It's tricky to rock around. To rock around. That's right on time. is tricky. to tricky. 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 I met this little girly. It's kind of curly. Went to a house and bust her out. I had to leave real early. These girls are really sleazy. All they just say is please me. Or spend some time in rock a rhyme. I said, it's not that easy. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right, our time is tricky. Don't mean nothing, they know who's inside. It's tricky to rock around to rock around, that's right on time is tricky. it? Tricky, 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 tricky. It's tricky to rock around to rock around, that's right on time is tricky. It's tricky, 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 tricky. Classic. Yes. Oh, <laughs> always,
4: always It's always, always a classic. <laughs> So, yeah, the BC Boys uh, joined Run DMC for their tour along with Houdini, LO Cool J, and Timex Social Club. Hmm. Yeah, R&B band, just kind of, yeah.
3: Interesting. Were they a rush management band?
4: I believe.
3: Yeah, probably.
6: probably.
4: Yeah, 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 But then def-
3: right next to Oran Juice Jones. <laughs>
4: yes, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, of course, this is a way to showcase LL Cool J, who's become a huge star, Houdini already. He's legit. And then the Beastie Boys getting to do their 15 minutes yeah. in the beginning. And they opened the show pretty much. And the funny thing is that sometimes the Beastie Boys, actually almost every time, they weren't on the lineup, like on the ticket stubs or on the marquee, because it's just like a full lineup because they would, you know, say like, run DMC, LL Cool J, Houdini. And guests, you know, <laughs> and they,
3: other guys. Yes,
4: yes, exactly. So, so sometimes, like, actually, a lot of times, they would go on stage. They would open the show, and with their beer, just like you know, kind of <laughs> just dancing around. And the audience is like, "All right, cool. Those roadies are pretty good. <laughs> are they doing sound check or something?" Because who are these people? And that's exactly what it is. Like sometimes they would actually do pretty well yeah. on the shows. Like, and that was actually kind of frightening to the run DMC because they would be like, I don't know. They might get disappointed. So we're going to wait in the dressing room. We're not going to watch them so they don't get so nervous. And then from the dressing room, they'd hear like from the audience yelling like, yeah, white boy, go (laughs) and stuff like that. And they're like, holy crap. The Beastie Boys actually, they were able to turn the audience from just like indifference to like hey, you guys, you guys know how to party. You guys know how to rap. This yeah. is a pretty decent show.
3: They could win over people in 15 minutes. And this was like, this was so different from Madonna because Madonna was a, that was a pop crowd. This is a hip hop crowd. Like they know what the fuck they're coming to see.
4: Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's no room for pranks right now. <laughs> now it's, 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 you really do it. And actually on this tour, the Beasties got to know Run and D and J really well. They would hang out after shows on, you know, tour buses, hotel rooms, and especially Jam Master J he mentored them a lot and taught them a lot on how to put a rap performance together. And the guys in turn would watch Run DMC set and see how they commanded the stage, you know, the whole like, who's house? runs house. Yeah. All that business. And like, they got a real education on how to do a real hip hop show, like mm-hmm. how to represent themselves properly, how to excite the crowd, how how to keep that energy going, especially if you're not hiding behind a, a you know, a drum set or guitar or anything, you're your own hype man. So the BCs, they did learn a lot from them so in turn the beastie boys showed run dmc some weird ass shit that maybe run and dmc'd never be exposed to like showing run how to do whippets (laughs) with cans of whipped cream or what run said stuff only white people do
3: (laughs) i've done a lot of whippets
6: i'm not
4: gonna i'm not gonna fuck with that man and the beastie was are you sure everyone's doing
3: it and I've had some great nights on whippets. So <laughs> you did? Yeah, that's crazy. Ah, fucking great time. You know that like zaps your brain or something? I'm fine. You are? <laughs> you are? I
4: mean, um, you are.
3: That was many years ago. <laughs> I I did the whippets. It was that was college. It's college time. That's what you do whippets when you're a kid. You don't do whippets in your thirties. No, uh, that's your teens, your twenties, yeah, early twenties, <laughs> my mid twenties. No more whippets.
4: Wow. <laughs> Well, run DMC. They were they were just like this is hilarious. Yeah. If anything, thank you for teaching us a part of your culture. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Hey, did I mention we showed you how to put on a hip hop (laughs) act? And you. Anyway, it's fine. It's fine. Good trade. Good trade. And the shows, you know, they went off really well most of the time, except for, unfortunately, kind of towards the end, they performed in Long Beach, California. And uh, this was actually even before the Beastie Boys took stage. This is when Houdini was on. A huge fight broke out with over 40 people were injured. It was just a nasty riot. Apparently, there was some sort of gang warfare going on between two gangs at the show, and the venue didn't handle the security as well uh they refused to even let the police come in at first Mm -hmm. that's some of the accounts saying like oh we don't want to call the cops because then people are going to find out about this and obviously it got much much worse and then the news chopper came and Uh. all this stuff and all these people writing newspapers on how this you know rap music is so violent Uh. and meanwhile run dmc's like what do we do what did we do <laughs> we didn't even play that night how yeah. are we inciting violence like but this was a chance for i guess the media and politicians to like take a stand or something of and course. to make the you know make themselves look good like even tipper gore yeah. good old tipper gore ah. said I believe there's a subliminal message in rap music that it's OK to beat people up, which is like such crap. Even Run said, hey, why don't you listen to our record? Listen to every single word and tell me if you find that. And obviously silence.
3: Obviously. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Why don't you, Tipper Gore, why don't <laughs> yes. you listen to Run DMC's album and then maybe <laughs> you'll learn a thing or two. <laughs> Thank you, Jello.
4: <laughs> Jello, be off for everyone. Thank you. That's what we needed. And unfortunately, that was also... there. I mean, people were actually grabbing these opportunities. Unfortunately, Curtis Blow kind of fell into that too because they asked him, like, what do you think about this? And they're, he's just like, yeah, yeah, no, they do incite violence. This is very not right. The, it's their fault completely. Like, you putting on the blame on them. And then a few months later, walking back on that, oddly enough, by saying, listen, now, they're my brothers. We don't work together anymore. But um, I, I guess I just fell into... You know, a lot of people paying attention to me. I'm very sorry about that. Yeah. I, I'll do anything for them. I will stand with an Uzi with them, which is a very <laughs> strange way of saying that he, <laughs> they don't incite violence yeah. by being like, I'm willing to kill a motherfucker <laughs> for <me. laughs> so, so that's the Raising Hell tour. Yeah. Hell was raised, <laughs>
6: but it wasn't
4: had nothing to do with, no. with whoever was on no. stage. It had
3: nothing to do with Houdini Run DMC or the Beastie Boys. But the Beastie Boys, fresh off a tour with their heroes, return to New York City to put the final touches on their debut album. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's finally time to talk about licensed to ill.
8: Yeah! Oh my-
4: Is that them kind of layering on top of each other, doing the accents on certain words? Mm-hmm. Run DMC, baby. Or Cold Crush Brothers. Or you want Treacherous go- 3. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Taking the old school, and, and well, we're still in old school, taking the older <laughs> school into less old school.
3: Now listen to that. You might well be asking the same question I asked after returning the license to ill after many, many years. What the fuck happened to make them so goddamn good all of a sudden? Well, the simple answer here. Is time. By Rick Rubin's recollection, the work for License to Ill took place over a period of about, well, he says two years, but it's really about a year. Yeah. And when it came time to record, the Beastie Boys spent months going in and out of Chung King Studios whenever they pleased. And this was all while they were touring with Madonna and Run DMC.
4: And don't forget partying whenever they could. Yeah. Going to the club, picking up, you know, just writing something on a napkin, putting it in their pocket, finding it a week later. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. But in the two years leading up to that recording, the BCs learned the ins and outs of hip-hop and experimented with techniques that would change the game forever. For example, the song we just heard, Ryman and Stealin', which is about pirates.
4: (laughs) No, you got to say it with conviction.
3: It's about pirates. There we go. (laughs) It uses not only the guitar riff from Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath, but also the drum intro from Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks. That drum loop, however, wasn't cut, copied, and pasted digitally in 15 seconds like what can be done today. Instead, Adam Yauch, aka MCA, had to construct an entire Rube Goldberg apparatus in his Brooklyn apartment just to get that sample recorded.
4: Yeah, by using a quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape deck. Now, like a reel-to-reel tape deck, it's kind of like a, you know in the old uh, '80s and '90s movies where where the FBI taps the phones and they're listening in with big headphones while smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like.
3: Yeah, it's a real. thing. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's
4: a real thing. And remember when we said that MCA was that kind of kid who liked to take things apart to see how it worked? Mm-hmm. Well. He also like to do this too. <laughs> so Adrock goes to MC's apartment in Brooklyn Heights because MC is like, "I got to show you something. Come over here." So Adrock walks in into what could have been a back to the future scene where Ad-Rock is Marty McFly walking in <laughs> on Doc Brown, and there's like this long tape pulling out of the reel-to-reel tape deck machine, going around a chair and around a microphone stand <laughs> and back into the tape deck. He's like, what is all this, stuff?" <laughs> and because it, it was in a loop, you see, like the actual tape went around in a long loop and back into the machine a loop machine, mm-hmm. right? And Androck is like, what the hell is this? And MCA replies, well, you know, I recorded the intro drum beat to the Led Zeppelin song and it ran a loop just like that. Mm-hmm. Just that way we can have a beat constantly. Kind of like what we talked about with uh, DJ Cool Herc, with uh, the merry-go-round, kind of like that thing, but now with more technology to it. Yeah. And MCA, he didn't invent this tape loop no, machine. No, he didn't invent tape no, looping at all, no. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, it's been done a bunch of times before then. Remember 10CC with I'm Not In Love? Mm -hmm. they did that with recording their vocals and then they ran a tape loop all the way around in england
3: carolina hidalgo the last 10 cc fan
4: exactly Let's hope not. (laughs) They did that in 1975. Yeah, the Beatles were
3: doing tape loop stuff.
4: Yes, and MCA, he'd probably seen it because, remember, he worked at Shakedown Studios before the Beastie Boys uh, were taking off and everything. And so he'd always had sort of like a hand in trying to learn the technology of a recording studio. You know, he probably saw that when the Latin Rascals were doing it at the studio because the Latin Rascals worked a lot of their editing for their early EPs and also Jay. Burnett, who, you know, remembered Burzuti, a -hmm. good friend of the Beasties. He engineered Planet Rock, you know, Africa Bambetta's song. And actually he he engineered Suicide Dream My Dream. No shit. Dream Baby Dream? Dream Baby Dream. Sorry. (laughs) That's that's a David Lynch book.
2: Sorry, sorry, sorry.
4: (laughs) Yes. So, you know, he also did the tape loop for the ACDC bit on Rock Hard. Mm -hmm. So- MCA is not an inventor or anything, but right now he's an apprentice. Yeah. You know, he's about 21, 22. He's taking every opportunity to educate himself yeah. about all of these things. And he's doing it on his own, on his own time to learn about this because eventually they're not going to need nobody. <laughs> And that's amazing, like just by watching and just learning and then just taking your own household items and putting it together because being like, you know what, sometimes it's better if we just make this music ourselves, you know, because yes, the Beastie Boys, sure, they're MCs, but they also... Always have a hand in the production of their music.
3: Always, definitely. And that's part of what makes them originals. Uh, and that's the thing about like figuring shit out on your own. It's like I know going to school and learning about shit and like apprenticing with people like right underneath uh, is great and everything. But like when you f- have to figure everything out on your own, you come up with real weird ways of doing shit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that's how those weird ways of doing shit. Like that's how you come up with something original. It's what we talked about with like Joy Division. You know, like they had shitty fucking guitar amp, so Peter Hook had to play his bass way up high so they could actually hear it over the guitars and that's what gave Joy Division their sound and essentially created post-punk
4: exactly <laughs> like, it's crazy that's the beauty of it it's just like figuring out with your own common sense with some tools uh there's no YouTube no. there's no nothing you just go in and you try to make it work and it ends up being something Totally different and original.
3: Mm-hmm. Now, again, the freedom to experiment cannot be overstated. And almost invariably, the person behind that experimentation was MCA. Although the other Beastie Boys was like, how the fuck did he figure this out? How did he learn how to do this? They never knew. And for example, on the fan favorite track, Paul Revere, Yauk took a simple 808 drum loop, flipped over the tape, and recorded the drum machine backwards. Then, by playing the backwards recorded loop forwards... He gave us this entirely original beat.
9: Now, here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with that Rob, Sier and me, my team. I've been had a little horsey named Paul Revere. Just me and my horse. And a quart of beer, riding across the land, kicking up sand, sharing spices on my tail cause I'm in demand, one lonely beast, D. I. all by myself without nobody, the sun is beating down on my baseball hat, the air is getting hot, the beer is getting flat, looking for a girl, I ran into a guy, his name is M.C.A., I said howdy, he said hi. This voice was hosted.
3: Such a fan favorite that they could just have the fans sing it in its entirety at concerts.
4: Don't need to do it then. <laughs> Don't need to do it. And the funny thing how they came up with this song was actually they were sitting outside on the stoop. They were waiting for Run DMC. I think they were going to record something together or work on the album and Run DMC were going to come in. And so they're waiting and with you know with their beers and everything, they're just like, they're kind of late. What's going on? And then they see around the corner Run Actually, running, <laughs> sprinting, running,
6: run, sprinting. Yes, that's better, right? That's, yeah, yeah. Run,
4: jogging? Uh, no, no, sprinting all the way and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and he gets all the way to the Beastie Boys, right, with the stupid, person And he's like, oh, okay. And DMC is like way behind. And he's like, okay, guys, I got this. All right, all right, I got this. Okay, here's a little story I got to tell. You gotta, you guys gotta use that. You guys gotta use that. And so. And the Beastie's like, okay, great. And, you know, they got their notebook with their rhymes and, and they'd start writing the rhymes for this. And then they're getting this together and they're like, oh, this is perfect. This is beautiful. Thank you, Ron.
6: Thank you, Ron.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Although the funny thing, though, is that it kind of, the beginnings kind of similar to Stoop Rap, mm-hmm. which uh, which is a Double Trouble, which is like these two guys from Funky Four plus one more. Ah. These two guys, remember the whole thing? I, I think I told you about this—the tragic story. Funky Four plus one more mm-hmm. is Sylvia Robinson. Uh, uh, because of her, unfortunately, that the group kind of splintered, and then the two guys left. Ended up being Double Trouble for a little bit until Stevie Ray Vaughan said, "No, that's my band." Yeah. So they had to <laughs> change it to the Deuce, which is such a bad name because it sounds like a bathroom joke yeah. <laughs> but they but they did have some really good rhymes you know the stoop rap mm-hmm. which kind of sounds just like it so i don't know if run had any you know if heard it or anything like that but it's just like here's a little story that must be told about two cool brothers that were put on hold
3: ah uh, i mean know? it could have been that like one of the what a cryptomnesia yeah, uh, yeah, probably. It, it might have been that. Either yeah.
4: either way, if it was a nod or not, I mean, the song is great. It's got the storytelling. It's it's introducing all the characters. <laughs> it's uh, it's got a couple of questionable things to it, but <laughs> hey, you know what? Like they're on their way to being legit MCs. I they mean, really they're, they're, they're they're pretty much like oh, they've arrived. Yeah, by the no, time
3: License to Ill has appeared, they have arrived. They are legit MCs. They're fucking great.
4: Exactly. They're putting their name on the mailbox yeah. right <laughs> at this moment.
3: As far as the writing and recording process for most of the songs went, the Beasties would write the lyrics together at Mike D's apartment on Barrow Street. And these lyrics, these were essentially fantasies of a life that they all pretended to have. Essentially, these lyrics made them sound far tougher, violent, and misogynistic than they actually were. I mean, they're not misogynistic. If this tells you anything, fucking Adrock has been married to Kathleen fucking Hannah from Bikini Kill since 2006. And they have been together for 10 years before that. <laughs> but using the personas they'd created with Rick Rubin, the Beastie Boys would write lyrics that would divide up who said what while accenting, backing up, or doubling each other, just like the Treacherous Three and Run DMC. This gave the Beastie Boys a devastating triple threat attack, which can be heard in full on their tongue-in-cheek ode to angel dust-fueled juvenile delinquency. Slow ride.
8: I got money, I got juice, I got to the body and I got loose. I got rhythms, I got rhymes, I
9: got the girlies with the disc behind. I got ill, I got busted, I got dust and I got dusted.
4: Do you think the Beastie Boys were ever like, hey, Russell, can I try that? <laughs> I bet I bet at least once. And I, then they were like, never again.
3: Absolutely not. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's nary a punk song on License to Ill, even if you count girls, which, you know, we'll talk more about girls next episode. But even so, the songs featuring guitars from License to Ill ended up becoming the biggest hits Even if they have very little in common with the Beastie's hardcore origins. See, if you'll remember, the heroes of the Beastie Boys in the mid 80s were Run DMC. And when it came to guitar on the Beastie's debut, the style followed Run DMC's lead. And case in point is No Sleep Till Brooklyn. No
8: Sleep Till! (laughs) Okay. <laughs>
4: you see it's real but it's not real (laughs) it's real but it's not real (laughs) well yeah they started with the title because you know no sleep till brooklyn they're thinking well no sleep till hammersmith Mm -hmm. right like uh like motorhead like motorhead and at
3: the time brooklyn was not the cool place to be like brooklyn was kind of lame
4: yeah no it it was i mean at least it wasn't a place to stay up all night to go to (laughs) i guess that's what that was the the whole bit is like they're like this is the story that we're taking on these personas that we're a huge touring rock band and you know, on location touring around the nation kind of business mm-hmm. and how cool they are, which is the funny part of it. They're acting like cliche rock stars from that era and you know, mm-hmm. the hotels, limos, girls partying eight days a week. Uh, they're just having fun with it, yeah, that's really what it is.
3: There's they're having fun <laughs> with just it, just fun
4: <laughs> and to complete that fun, Rick got Carrie King to record the metal guitar solo to solidify their cool rock star so that they're wrapping him.
3: <laughs> and of course, if you don't know the name Carrie King, I'm sure you know Carrie King as the co-author of this song right here. Here.
4: I love it when you do it to my face.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So loud. So good.
4: Motherfucking Slayer, man.
3: Fucking Slayer. Yeah, it's Slayer.
4: They were on the same label. Yeah. And so like like, not
3: not only were they on the same label, Rick Rubin produced Rain in Blood the same year as licensed to Ill. I see it, I get it,
4: because the Slayer is the cavalry, and then the Beastie Boys are the lookouts who, who got too drunk and fell asleep and missed the whole battle.
3: Yeah, I mean, back then, the only four artists on Def Jam to put out albums was LL Cool J, the Beastie Boys, Oran Juice Jones, and fucking Slayer. <laughs> Now, as far as the biggest hit on the album goes, the Beastie Boys might not have reached such heights had Run-DMC not built the scaffolding first. See, by 1986, Run-DMC had broken through to the mainstream with a bona fide hit, although they had to use rock music to do it. But what's ironic about this fact is that while Run-DMC used an established rock band to break out, the rock band, who is today one of the biggest rock bands in the world, was in 1986... Washed up, coked out, and for all intents and purposes, fucking done. Run DMC actually saved this band's career by being the hip new group. But by teaming with Aerosmith for a re-recording of Walk This Way, Run DMC took rap ever closer to the mainstream. Yeah, it's fucking it's. it's Stephen Tyler and his auntie Best.
6: Yes. <laughs> what did
4: uh, I think it was? Uh, Mike D called him. Uh, what? Well, Who's this ancient court jester with thirty scars uh, But lovingly, R- much
9: respect. I'm much, sure.
3: Much respect. Yeah, Stephen yes. Tyler walking.
9: Man, I used to have a cocaine dog, but that dog got hit by a train, and the train's late. I- <laughs>
6: <laughs>
9: anyway, here's Walk This Way.
6: <laughs> so, <laughs> run. The
4: funny thing is, this was Rick Rubin's idea, obviously. He's big into metal and rock music. He knows all about Aerosmith. Run DMC, not so much. So, even after they met, you know, and recorded with Steve and Joe from Aerosmith, like, even during that whole thing, they were still, like, not fully aware of everything. Mm. They would even be like, oh, yeah, 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 that, that's my boy Steve from Toys in the Attic. I, 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 is that, is that their the name or something like that is always oh, the name of the album. Yeah. The album, anyway, it's, it's Steve from ah, no. Can you say it again? Uh, Ariel Smith, Aerosmith, Ariel,
3: Aero-Smith. Aero-Smith. Aerosmith,
4: Aero, Aero- Smith. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Anyway, thanks to these guys, we made it to the mainstream.
3: Yeah, they did, they absolutely did. But as LL Cool J said when he inducted the Beastie Boys into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Run DMC brought rap to the edge of suburbia but the Beastie Boys drove it right to the center of town. Now, personally, the song that took hip-hop and the Beastie Boys all the way to multi-platinum status is the one that I never wanted to hear again as a kid because MTV was still overplaying its video in the fucking mid-90s, 10 years after it was released. But looking back on it in the context of their history and in the context of the album, I can say I again enjoy... You gotta fight for your at the party.
6: Yeah! <laughs> Kick it!
4: to fight for your rights to party on their first major album, their first album, and this is part four of Beastie Boys. <laughs> there are documentaries on the Nuremberg Trials that are much shorter <laughs> than this, this Beastie Boys series.
3: I mean, most Beastie Boys uh, fucking documentaries, like, start... Here,
4: let's yeah, start here. Okay, so <laughs> let's just let's just start here.
3: Let's just start here. Yeah, let's just start with this. I'm Carolina. <laughs> this is Marcus. Welcome to No Dogs in Space. Beastie Boys Part One starts let's, now. There we go.
4: <laughs> yes. So, Fight for Your right, the Party obviously is another joke song. You know, another party anthem joke song. Uh, the Beastie Boys, their friend uh, Tom Cushman, wrote a song with MCA uh, with their little band called Brooklyn. Their little side project called fight for your right to party, which is actually nothing like the song the Beastie Boys came out with, but they did take the title and ran with it, which is why Tom Cushman gets writer's credit. Mm -hmm. Although I heard he didn't, get it at first but now he has it now his name's on there forever congratulations now (laughs) so now okay so according to an interview in penthouse magazine 1987 so you know very legit because it's 1987
3: hey there's been some good fucking journalism come out of penthouse
4: i'm not even talking about penthouse (laughs) i'm talking about the beastie boys in 1987
3: oh okay 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 they're
4: very not uh let's just say interviewing them anytime before 1992 not a good idea yeah so they'd like to mess around all the time but according to this MCA said this song was one of the last things they recorded. They were drinking and hanging out on the road and writing the lyrics at some table, some place, hanging out, using all the napkins because their album, apparently like they were told like, this needs to get done. We got to finish this album and and, and throw this out there and release this right now. So, all right, just put this together really fast because Columbia Records was like, Just come on, guys, hurry up. How how long does it take to record? Like, (laughs) this has been over a year now. Uh, You know, like, fight for your right to party. Finally, they got it in the can, and then they released it as a single Which is something the Beastie Boys didn't necessarily want. Yeah. Because it's representative of who they are right off the bat in the mainstream, in MTV and everything. And that's the thing. Right when the song came out, MTV was immediately like, hey, we got a heavy rotation spot for you. Make a video like now. Yeah. It's due in like two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Rick Rubin was busy directing Tougher Than Leather, which is a run DMC movie that you don't need to see.
3: We watched about half of it uh, a couple nights ago. You do not need to see that. You do not need to see that.
4: (laughs) So, uh, so Rick was too busy to direct this masterpiece. Actually, it's a really great video.
3: It's one of the best videos ever made.
4: Yeah. If it weren't so overplayed, we'd enjoy it so much more, (laughs) but it was played so much in my childhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was up to Adam Dubin and Rick Manello, friends of the Beastie Boys, of course, and friends of Rick Rubin from uh, NYU days. They co-directed the video and they used the party scene at Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, that movie, Audrey Hepper movie. Mm-hmm. They used that scene as a template to the video. So even though like Adam Dubin and Rick Manello they were young guys, you know, barely out of film school, or at least Adam Dubin was, or Rick was older. But either way, they put this together and they did a really good job with it. Like they had storyboards for yeah. certain scenes. They had a vision on how it was going to go and they pulled it off. And also they just since they didn't have a lot of money for this, they just invited all their friends and family and they just put them all in the video. You know, Murphy's Law is in the video. The
3: hardcore, yeah, the New York hardcore band.
4: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dave Skilken from The Young and the Useless. Uh, remember Adam Horowitz, Ad Rock's old band is in there. Command man, Dave Skilkin. Yeah. Say Adams, Glenn Friedman, Tom Cushman, and of course, Rick Rubin showed up for a day and they all threw pies at him
3: because <laughs> they're, they're soda yeah. and pie. Yeah, he's the guy that gets the pie through thrown at him. Yes, yeah.
4: And the parents in the video was a uh, co-director Rick Manello's real life parents and Rick is the one actually Rick was the only one who could actually gently push a pie in his mother's face <laughs> at the end of the video simply because no one else wanted to do that to anyone's mom no. much less the very lovely Mrs. (laughs) (laughs) Manella.
3: You know, the most ironic thing about the song, the video and all that is that, you know, it's all about teenage rebellion. You know, your mom threw it, your best porno mag, living at home is such a drag, all this shit. The Beastie Boys came from the most permissive households in all of New York City. That's
4: why this is a persona. Yeah. It's frat rock. Yeah. They're just having fun with, uh, as we said before, the three bad Jewish brothers. And and, and when they did with Cookie Puss and Beastie Groove and everything, they're taking something that they think is kind of fun or funny and they're going with it. And Mm -hmm. that's what they wanted to do with this, except that the entire world was now involved in this (laughs) and didn't realize
3: it was a joke. Not at all. I mean, these days we look at Five for Your Right as kind of a corny song, you know, it's something that's damn near reserved for children. Like it's a kid song. Yeah. You know. <laughs> In fact, one might even look on the whole of License to Ill as an almost goofily innocent album, especially when you compare it to say NWA, whose debut came just a year after License to Ill. But what's interesting is that while the lyrics do seem innocent and fanciful. Some of the lyrics are actually fairly violent. They completely open about drug use and they're misogynistic, which is quite similar in subject matter to the forthcoming West Coast gangster rap scene. Now, granted, most of the violence is in Ryman and Steelen, And Ryman and Stealin about pirates. It's yeah. very obviously about pirates. The misogyny is mostly of the make me a sandwich variety girls to clean up my room, girls to do the dishes and shit like that. And the angel dust use is mostly about Russell Simmons.
4: (laughs) The Beast Boys are like, we're just the eye of the storm,
3: really. (laughs) But even so, violence, drug use, and criminal behavior had never really been talked about in a hip-hop album before License to Ill. Or at least it hadn't been talked about in an album that anyone paid attention to. And it's for this reason that many people say that License to Ill is, improbably, actually the very first gangster rap album.
6: What? <laughs> and yeah. these
3: three upper-middle-class white kids are partly responsible for the West Coast gangster rap explosion.
4: Sometimes this happens. <laughs> sometimes you have an oopsie, you know? Um, sometimes, like like, said, like Jello Biafra, uh, a theater major who accidentally helped incite a whole hardcore you know, movement. Yeah.
3: It happens. It just happens. <laughs> this shit sometimes happens. Most succinctly, this point was made by Ben Westhoff, author of Original Gangsters, which is the definitive book on gangster rap. It's the book we used for our uh, Biggie Tupac series on last podcast on the left. And in an article he wrote years ago for Playboy, he gives source after source after source of West Coast gangster rappers giving license to ill its due. MC Wren of NWA told Ben that the Beastie's first album was a classic, and Ice Cube's delivery prior to NWA was essentially a straight ripoff of ad rock. And Ice Cube even used the new style by the Beastie Boys as a sample in his song My Posse, back when Ice Cube was rapping under the name CIA. Listen to this. I assure you, this is not ad rock. This is Ice Cube in 1987. <laughs>
8: It's all about girls and making cash money Grinshaw. Grinshaw is where I chill Never ever sick, but always ill, Ill. Sir G's, no debating Beats I cut, keep the woofers vibrating Third to the cut, but that's alright Cause CIA is on the mic My posse, my posse <laughs> getting big, Posse's getting big My posse, my posse
6: Wow!
3: Wow! <laughs> Fucking wow!
4: And then and and then he he grew into a man.
3: <laughs> Even iced tea who released one of the first gangster rap tracks with Six in the Morning, said that he was inspired to portray the street life he was living after hearing the Beastie Boys be themselves in Hold It Now Hit It.
4: Well, to be fair, though, a lot of people, since they didn't know what they looked like at that time, they thought they were just a bunch of Puerto Rican kids.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I understand that. I get it. Now, as Westhoff wrote in his article, there was, of course, Schooly D in Philly. There was Slick Rick. You know, Slick Rick's so fucking gangster that, you know, Snoop Dogg covered Lottie Dottie almost word for word on Doggy Style. I didn't even know Lottie Dottie wasn't a Snoop Dogg song.
6: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, you know, and of course, there's like there's Public Enemy prior to the West Coast gangster rap explosion. But even Eazy-E, arguably the scariest gangster rapper in history, was a gigantic fan of the Beastie Boys and even sampled MCA's shout out to Sniffin' Glue from Hold It Now Hit It in his breakout track, Boys in the Hood. Just after the course.
9: Donald be in the place to give me the pace. You say My man JD is on free base. The boy JD was a friend of mine till I caught him in my car trying to steal an alpine. Takes him up the street to call a truce. The city clock head pulls out a deuce. Juice. Little did he know I had a load of 12. Games. Suck a dead L.A. Times front page Cause the boys in the hood are always hard You come talking to trash, we'll pull your guard Knowing nothing in life but to be legit Don't quote me, boy, cause I
3: ain't said shit Yep, yep. Beer drinking, breath stinking, sniffing glue
4: Just because a couple of kids in Forest Hills Decide to experiment when they're teenagers <laughs> This is what we
6: end up with
3: But maybe the biggest fan of the Beastie Boys On the West Coast, though, was Dr. Dre Who sampled Paul Revere, Fight for Your Right, and Girls on the early N.W.A. track Eight Ball, in which Eazy-E references Brass Monkey twice?
4: Well, it was a popular drink.
9: 502. Step in the party, I was drunk as hell. Three girls already said Earth your grips me. A ball in hand, that's what I got.
8: Yo man, you see Easy Earlin in the parking lot.
3: Easy man. you really like the beastie voice.
4: And I really liked Easy E.
3: <laughs> Man, when I was a kid, Easy E was my favorite. I loved Easy E. Because yeah. he was like the horror guy. Yeah. Like the song of fucking sorry Louie. That song's insane. It's about <laughs> him beating a guy to death with a baseball bat.
4: But he's sorry. He's, he's, so, he's sorry, everybody. Don't
3: worry. No, I beat him to death with my Louisville slugger. Sorry to the ba- he's apologizing to the baseball bat.
4: He's at least accepting some kind of responsibility, <laughs> even if it's in the wrong. It's in the wrong his heart is in the right place. <laughs> the, the apologies in the wrong place. There's nothing I could, uh, you know what? Oh man, rest in peace, man. Rest, <laughs> rest, and, rest, in, rest
3: in peace, peace. Yeah. But really, the first people in hip hop to tell the Beastie Boys that they'd truly done something special with their debut album was Run from Run DMC.
4: Oh, yeah, because, you know, they finally finished the album, and Mike details a story of how he had the tape for the album and so Ron's like yeah let me hear it let, let's go into my car because he had a fancy BMW because hell they're making they're finally making the big bucks yeah they finally made it so he's like okay let's drive around in my BMW and so they start driving around and Mike the whole time is just sitting here like in the car he's just like this is crazy this is so nerve wracking why are we in the small space while you're listening to my music <laughs> you know it's always so uncomfortable oh
3: god it sounds
7: awful while they're just
4: driving around <laughs> and, and, and Ron's like listening to it and he's like kind of nodding his head he's out louder, and Mike's like, "Okay, that that could be a good thing." <laughs> He's not fast forwarding it or anything, because you know, Mike Mike D is very nervous and insecure about this. The BC Boys actually had that feeling of self-doubt all the time yeah it was something that Dr. Dre uh not Dr. Dre but the other the TV raps Dr. Dre their doctor
3: of Dr. Dre and Ed Lover
4: exactly their second DJ uh did say like yeah they, they were always kind of worried you know to make sure that they were doing a good job and they, they weren't overstepping or anything like that and so Mike D's sitting there with Run in the car while they're driving and speeding and mm-hmm. stuff and Run kind of seemed into it a little bit. And once the tape finished, he turned to Mike D and he said, you know, you know, you really, you have at least gold here.
3: Yeah. At, at l- least. At least a gold record.
4: And Mike's like, oh, <laughs> oh, really? He's like, yeah, man. Yeah, man. This, this is good. This is tight.
3: Yeah. Now, License to Ill would indeed go gold, but it wouldn't stop there. Instead... It would not only be the first rap LP to top the Billboard charts and be Columbia Records' fastest-selling debut, but it would also go on to sell over 10 million copies in the United Whoa. States alone, making it one of only 92 albums in history to ever go diamond and one of only 34 diamond records to actually be good.
4: You checked that. I- you that. You- <laughs> You spent your lunch on that,
3: I went. Th- I did. I went through the entire list and made a little tick mark for each good one. <laughs> each I got a good one. Oh, tick, 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 tick. Wow. But remember, the Beastie Boys had become famous by pretending to be misogynistic, violent dickwads. And they were about to discover that this act was going to get real old, real fast, especially considering how the Beastie Boys were barely out of high school. And so... It's with the hydraulic penis, the frat boy antics, and the reinvention afterward that produced Paul's boutique and check your head. That we'll begin part five
6: oh.
3: of the Beastie
4: oh, Boys. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> We've okay. So okay. So we finally got where we're going. We're, we're going. running. Where we're running. Mm. The fastest-selling debut album. Yeah. Holy crap! That's something to. to to just jump off the bat with that and becoming incredibly famous so quickly. So fast. that's something we're going to talk about for sure. And how, uh, you know, fame when, when that rises almost immediately, a bunch of shit's going to go down and we're going to get into that in part five and part six will definitely be, uh, the later years, but also the, what my favorite, my favorite beastie boys album. Anyways, mm-hmm. uh, hello, nasty. So mm-hmm. we'll get into that in part six. I'm very, very excited all about, I, I'm excited about all of it.
3: Oh yeah. I'm excited about all. Yeah. Next one is Paul's Boutique and Check Your Head. Then we got Ill Communication, uh, Hello Nasty, uh, To the Five Burrows, a uh, little bit of hot sauce. Yeah, we'll do a little bit of everything. Yeah, we'll do a little bit of everything. Of course, the, you know, the end, uh, yes. to the end to come.
4: And uh, I want to give a quick credit where credit's due because uh, there were a couple extra books that we had to you know, check out for this one. Uh, I read uh, Raising Hell, The Rain, Ruin, and Redemption of Run DMC and Jam Master Jay by Ronan Rowe. That was a very decent book. Uh, I especially loved uh, Tougher Than Leather, The Rise of Run DMC by Bill Adler. Bill Adler being uh, the publicist for Def Jam for about five, six years. Mm-hmm. So he knew everyone very intimately. It was It's a really, really good book. It's a very good read as well. And uh, the men behind Def Jam. Jam The Radical Rise of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin by Alex Ogg. I think Alex Ogg wrote a book. Uh, Dead Kennedys,
6: I believe. He wrote the yeah. Dead
4: Kennedys Fresh Fruit book, which is really good. And they're both very good books. Uh, definitely check it out. And also, I I actually got to talk to Adam Dubin, who was the co-director of Fight for Your Right to Party mm-hmm. uh, music video and as well as No Sleep Till Brooklyn music video. And uh, and definitely check out his documentary, Murder in the Front Row. It's a documentary on the, the, the mental thrash scene in the 80s uh, of the Bay Area in California. It's, it's great. So Adam was awesome to uh, kind of just, you know, let me know about a lot of these details and everything like that also with interviews and all this kind of stuff checking out so we kind of try to corroborate all of these facts all Mm -hmm. of these stories to kind of put them together and and then we had to you know reduce it as much as possible and condense (laughs) because it could have been like a 20-part series but I know
3: you think this is long we cut like 30 minutes from this, <laughs> we were going to go straight all like, all of the like whole Sugar Hill Gang story, Sugar Hill Records and Sylvia Robinson, all kinds of way deeper into the life of yeah. Russell Simmons. Th-
4: this like, <laughs> is a lot. This, I know there's it's a, a lot, lot of a lot. information, but we want to stick to the parts that are important and, and the fun stories, of course. Mm-hmm. And definitely check out Jaquan from the foundation. Jaquan being J A. Y-Q-U-A-N from the Foundation uh, YouTube channel and podcast. It is amazing. If you want to check out, because a lot of people are asking us if we're going to do a hip-hop season. No, there's no plans for that whatsoever. No, there's not. not. None at all. Uh, but if you want to hear, like, just learn a little bit more about the beginnings of hip-hop and even much more later on, uh, definitely check out J Quan. He's Great, A Mm -hmm. great hip-hop oral historian and and really lays everything down in just such a great... I'm so impressed by this guy. And Just such a great, like easy, accessible way to do it. And uh, I I just can't thank him enough.
3: Yeah, really can't. And also, I want to thank Ben Westhoff for uh, sending me that article and for answering some of my questions about the Beastie Boys. We're also going to be using some of his stuff for next week in uh, Paul's Boutique. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, And also, definitely check out Original Gangsters if you're interested in the gangster rap scene at all. That book is fucking amazing. It's so fucking good. And uh, also check out Ben's new book. Uh, it's called <laughs> Fentanyl Ink uh, if you're interested in how... Prescription drugs are killing America. Well,
4: you know, if you want a, a moment of escapism, yeah. I'm, I'm sure the book's great. I'm, I know, I'm almost sure of it. But man, that's going to be, that's a, get ready for that. Yeah. You know, get ready for Get that. ready for yes. it.
3: And of course, we want to thank all of our listeners. We want to thank you for listening every single week. And we want to thank all of uh, our listeners who are musicians uh, for sending in their bands and their songs to no dogs in space at gmail.com. If you listen to the show, you know that we play a band at at the end of every single episode and the band this week is the nopes out of love oakland that. i love that title don't change
4: anything the nopes you guys are great
3: actually i think it's just nopes just Even, nopes yep. It's cleaner. It's better. It's better. <laughs> Much cleaner. They've got a, uh, a brand new album out called uh, <laughs> the- <laughs> uh, they're, uh You can find them on Spotify. If you want to support them directly, you can go to hellanaw.com. Uh, dot Uh they've got looks like about five LPs out there, like LPs and EPs. The their shit is amazing. I love this band. Can't wait to see them. If they ever come to New York City, please let us know if you ever come to New York City. Nopes. Uh, you're fucking great. This album's great. Uh, check it out. This song's called Pocket Square, Motherfucker. Uh,
6: <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh thank you so much for listening. Uh, oh, uh, follow us uh, No Dogs Pod on Instagram to see when each new episode comes out. We're we'll here every other week. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and goodbye.
4: Goodbye.
0: A new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.